0: Welcome, this is another edition of the Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck. Located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, as always, a handful of stuff we're going to get into today in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. And I do want to thank everybody that has tuned in over the course of the last year. We've knocked out 70 shows, and we are going to give a little bit of a recap of the top points over the course of the 70 shows. So, We'll leave the chat on in case anybody's listening or watching live. And and what we'll do is we will kind of just go rapid fire. Um, I wrote down some of the top things we went into, but obviously some of them are a little more choppy and a little more elongated than others. But, hey, this this has been a solid year for the PBS. Let's get right into it. We started to talk about small market baseball. The Tampa Bay Rays, the model that has been proven at times to be good, right? The Tampa Bay Rays made it to the World Series this past year. Uh, As soon as they're done, they end up unloading Blake Snell. Looks like they're going to have another fire sale. Their philosophy on selling high in regards to players and continuing to keep their payroll as low as they could possibly make it has been enabled by Major League Baseball. It's not only been enabled by baseball but also the players association and the players association refusal to agree to a salary cap now when we think about the salary cap we think about it in one way we only think of a salary cap in re- in regards to controlling or curtailing salaries in major league baseball the salary cap would actually change the model of the small market baseball teams especially if it's used In conjunction with a salary floor, if you're forcing the Tampa Bay Rays, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Cleveland Indians, whatever teams you want to throw in there that are looking at keeping their payroll low as a way of turning a profit within their business, you do a salary cap in conjunction with a salary floor, basically forcing those teams to have a certain amount of payroll. You know whether it's sixty million, whether it's eighty million, whether it's you know a hundred million, whatever you decide, the Tampa Bay Rays of the world aren't going to get away with having a a forty or fifty million dollar payroll like they want, and it also will help in regards to owners. You think of owners when you're owning a baseball team. Many of them are businessmen just trying to sit there and turn a profit. If you force those owners to make a decision, you either want to be in baseball and are going to have to conform to the rules of what the salary cap and a, you know, in conjunction with a salary floor are, you will force owners who have no business being in baseball out of baseball. And how I compare this with other sports, which blows my mind because we don't have this problem in football. We don't have this problem in basketball. We don't have this problem in hockey. The talk in baseball is, "Hey, there's a model set for the small market teams that you could do so much more in baseball than in other sports." Those same markets exist in in other sports. Those same markets exist in, in, markets exist in basketball and baseball and hockey. And the unfortunate thing is we we have we have to try to acknowledge Hey Nolan, I'm trying to do a show here, buddy. Can you please go? If we don't do if we have a salary cap in baseball, it's going to change the other the, the other dynamics of what we view other sports. Tampa Bay isn't complaining in football that they don't have enough money. They could go out there and get the best player in the sport. You know, basketball teams, hockey teams don't use regions as an excuse to to not pay their players baseball is the only one that does that and it's because they don't have a salary cap and unless the sport's going to change you're going to watch teams that are going to decide that winning is not the most important thing and you think about it if you break down the whole aspect of sports what is competition about competition is about coming out ahead of who it is that you're competing against winning is is the most important thing, at least from the fans' perspective. That's why fans root for teams. Fans root for teams because of the expectation or the hope that their own team could go out there and win. Now, when you have got teams in baseball, you got teams in baseball that are trying to turn a profit and can care less about winning a championship. Like I said, if you're if you're real strong and a real Tampa Bay Rays supporter, you could point out the fact that they made it to the World Series this past year. And if you think about breaks, a couple different things go a certain way within that World Series, maybe the Rays had a chance. I didn't think they had a chance. And it's not because they were the Tampa Bay Rays. I believe they were the best team in the American League this past year. The problem is, is that they're not going to be able to sustain that over time because they're not choosing to. Because it doesn't coincide with their model of turning a profit. And like I said, you got the Tampa Bay Buccaneers getting ready to go to the playoffs, you know, pretty much right up at the threshold of the salary cap in the National Football League. You have the Tampa Bay Lightning in hockey coming off of a Stanley Cup with one of the higher payrolls in regards to the National Hockey League. So it's not about Tampa Bay and the city. You can throw the discussion about the stadium all you want. Yeah, they're, they're not getting a good deal with the stadium. At some point, maybe they're going to move out. But I don't think that changes the fact that the owner and the whole organizational structure is set up to turn a profit as opposed to winning. We spent some time this year talking about African-American managers and coaches in professional sports. The NBA Every single NBA team has had a black head coach at some point. The NFL still has nine teams that have not hired an African-American coach. Major League Baseball still has 10 teams that have not hired an African-American manager. And the reason that I bring this up is because if you think about Jackie Robinson becoming the first African-American baseball player in 60 years, breaking that color line, Um, keeping baseball, who uh, unfortunately was an example of the way society was set up. And once Jackie Robinson became the first black player playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers, every other team at some point felt some sense of urgency to hire or bring in a black player. You know, the Giants did it. You know, the Indians were next, the Browns. And by 1956, I believe, every team or all 16 teams at that time in Major League Baseball had at least one African-American player. Now, the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Phillies kind of dragged their feet through it a little bit, but overall, every team in baseball ended up having a black player. Now, in regards to coaches, remember, Jackie Robinson in 1972 goes out there nine days before he dies, basically pleads, says, hey, you know, I'd be be a happier guy if I knew that there was a dark face in that third base coaching box. In other words, if there was a black manager in baseball. And of course, it happened a couple years after he died and Frank Robinson became the first black manager in the history of Major League Baseball. And after that, some other teams followed suit. You know, the Giants, the Mariners, throughout, throughout the 80s, there was a couple teams that ended up doing it. Why was there not the same urgency for a team in baseball to hire a black manager that there was in regards to bringing in a black player? And all these years have gone by. We're talking about 1975 now, 45 years ago where the first black manager was hired in major league baseball. And there's still 10 teams that have not hired one. Now you're going to sit here and force a team to No, you can't do that. And if you think of what the NFL did in regards to the Rooney rule and and, and there. And in fact, another thing that happened over the course of the year was, uh, you know, proposed changes to the Rooney rule. And the thought was, is not enough blacks were being recruited for general manager and head coaching positions in the National Football League. They were actually talking about. Changing the role, Rooney rule to reward teams that decide to bring in a black coach or executive and give them draft picks. I mean, how asinine is that as a thought to actually reward a team that decides to hire a black coach, which they should consider blacks just as much as they consider whites, but to reward them and give them draft picks so teams could actually use that to a tactical advantage? You go out there and you hire Eric Bietamie as your coach next year and you get another draft pick. You get a prospective good coach, which I think the guy's going to be. But you also end up getting a draft pick for it, too. Two things shouldn't be used in conjunction with each other. But it baffles me how you're looking at two major sports in baseball and football and not every team has hired a blackhead coach. Is What is the reason for that? And how do you enforce it? You can't go and, I mean, it's hard to go to a team and say, hey, they got a coaching vacancy. You know what? You should hire a black person to be your head coach or to be your manager. But uh, this is something that you'd expect the sports to have cleaned up their self by now. And I've made several calls this year calling out the fact that this is stuff that has not been done. But what do you end up doing to make that change? You can't go to a team and say, you know, you have to do it. And Rob makes a comment about that there hasn't been a female coach. And, and that's that's just as big of a deal. Now, you, you want to be put in a position that the best possible candidates are going to be the ones that are gonna be up for a, for a considerable position, whether it's a coach, whether it's a position on a coaching staff, whether it's a general manager, whether it's a position in a front office, you want all these things to know you're gonna consider the best possible candidates. And why don't women come up as top candidates? You know, the Miami Marlins did a great thing this year by hiring Kim, Kim Nigg as their new general manager. And that was an absolute, that was something that was probably a long time coming. That was probably something that should have happened years ago. You're looking at somebody that had over 15 years, over 20 years experience working in Major League Baseball front offices. So hopefully that's a start. But you, you are seeing, you know, more attention being drawn to women in professional sports. And you hope that it's not just a sex thing as far as, you know, being in a locker room with a male and a female that has kept this from happening more often. But you want the best possible candidates to get a certain job. But unfortunately, time has gone by and society has categorized what they feel the best Candidates are And a lot of it's retreads Let's be real When when we talk to coaches How many coaches Do a bad job In a certain spot Or Have bad results In a certain place And end up getting another job Sometimes it's a simple matter Of being in there And as it applies to blacks Look at how many Manager jobs Frank Robinson ended up getting He got the job With the Indians He got the job With the Giants He was hired by the Orioles He was hired by the Nationals. I think there's a little proof that once you're in, you know, teams are going to consider you and take you seriously. Kim Ng, when she was hired by the Miami Marlins, if things don't work out down the road, she could end up getting another job as a general manager working for somebody else just because she's in. And I do believe in that. Once you're in, once you're part of the fraternity, once you've been accepted and been hired— if you happen to lose your job, you know, there's a good chance that you're gonna get hired by another team. And that's what you need. You need the you know, the Jackie Robinsons of the world to, you know, break ground. Frank Robinson is a manager in major league baseball. You know, Fritz Pollard was the first NFL head coach that was black in nineteen twenty one. There wasn't another one until Art Shell in nineteen eighty nine with the Oakland Raiders. And, you know, once that happens, I think you're going to see things change, um, especially where society is coming in regards to being more accepting, more um, diversified than we've ever been before. A.J. Hinch, when he ended up losing his job as manager of the Houston Astros. You looked at the amount of. Of evidence that was put out there um, the whole Houston Astros cheating scandal seemed like it was player driven it was something not run by AJ Hinch probably wasn't run by Jeff Luton. now both of them had known about it and that's why they ended up being suspended by Major League Baseball and then fired by owner Jim Crane now what I found fascinating about AJ Hinch is it goes right in proportion with my theory about the change of the role of a major league baseball manager. You have major league baseball managers that aren't given the opportunity to do the jobs that they were supposed to do that they were hired to do years ago. The analytics in the front offices are making the decisions for the managers and their job is to just implement the game plan. Their job is to just be a guidance counselor. Their job is to just go out there and You know, hopefully get some good results, but not do do it with decisions that they make within a game. A.J. Hinch, having that kind of job as the manager of the Houston Astros benefited him when he won a World Series championship. You could say the analytics staff, the front office by the Houston Astros, everything that they had in play ended up working, and A.J. Hinch was a World Series champion. Now, during this cheating scandal, he doesn't have control over its own players. The players are going to coaches. The players are going to people that are you know within the organization for their information in regards to stealing signs. A.J. Hinch is not in a position because he's been castrated as a major league manager to actually do anything about it. And I'll tell you this, I felt bad for him. I felt bad that he was put in a situation that he wasn't allowed to do his job and there was nothing that he could do about it. And I'm happy that the Detroit Tigers hired him and hopefully this thing will will you know go under the rug and time will end up going on. I mentioned about cheating as it exists in sports. And if you're a fan, you're going to be more inclined to accept cheating if it benefits your team if you're a yankees fan and you know that alex rodriguez is shooting up steroids in the on-deck circle you're going to say hit the ball over the fence if you're a houston astros fan and you hear you know banging of trash cans in a tune of phil collins in the air in in the air tonight you're going to accept that because you're a fan of the houston astros So there is a a hypocrisy that's involved when it comes to cheating in sports. You want to get mad because you feel like your opponent has deceived you. But if you are the one deceiving your opponent or your team is the one deceiving an opponent, you're going to be less inclined to cry foul. You're not going to call out your own team for cheating. You're going to accept it. But if another team is doing the same exact thing, you may be hypocritical in regards to calling them out for it. We talked about the Baseball Hall of Fame a lot this year. You know, the fact that it's all-time home runs leader, it's all-time hits leader. The players with the third and fourth highest batting averages in the history of Major League Baseball. The players with, the the four, four players with the highest single season home run totals the player with the most Cy Youngs, the player with the most MVPs, a player with 4,000 strikeouts. And the list will go on and on and on amongst players that have accomplished things that few, if any, have done in the history of sport. And they're all excluded from the Baseball Hall of Fame for many reasons. Now, the latest is Curt Schilling being held out by baseball writers because they don't think Curt Schilling's a nice guy. They don't like some of the things that Curt Schilling says as if that is an actual, should actually be criteria for the baseball hall of fame. It comes down to the numbers and baseball should do a better job of actually qualifying what it means to be in its hall of fame or they should change the name of its hall of fame because there's no other mockery in all professional sports than the baseball hall of fame. Does Hall of Fame mean a series of really good players with players that have done more than what the other players are in being held out? You look at the National Basketball Association, the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. And it's interesting if you look at it because that Hall of Fame is actually the exact opposite of the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. Bill Fitch, won one NBA championship, had a severe losing record as a head coach in the NBA, is in the Hall of Fame. Jozen Petrovic, who who I've equated to Reggie Lewis in the NBA, I've equated to Jose Fernandez in Major League Baseball, obviously all sharing the similarities of the tragedies that took their lives in the middle of their professional sports career. You know, I think of a lot of uh, a lot of different scenarios that you could say. Hey, they were similar to Drazen Petrovic, just as sad, but that didn't make Drazen Petrovic a no doubt Hall of Famer. But he is. And I know it sounds you know in bad taste to knock somebody that's no longer with us, but Roberto Clemente, when he died tragically on New Year's Day. In 1972. Had played an entire career. And had finished with 3,000 hits. Lou Gehrig. When he was diagnosed. With ALS. Which of course now is known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Had been one of the best players in the history of Major League Baseball. So to change the rules. To get those guys into the Hall of Fame. Sooner than the, the five-year waiting period was quite a right. But for Drazen Petrovic, he may have had a Hall of Fame career. He may have been on his way. But how is that different than Reggie Lewis? How is that different to Lyman Bostock? How is that different to Jose Fernandez? Players entering the prime of their career, tragically losing their life, doesn't necessarily qualify you for the Hall of Fame. But it did in basketball. And if, you're, if Drazen Petrovic was good enough to be in its Hall of Fame, so was Reggie Lewis. And you want to apply it to baseball? You look at Jose Fernandez? You look at Lyman Bostock? The NFL, you want to put Pat Tillman in the Hall of Fame? It should be universal. And this takes me to something that I've been thinking about for a while. Haven't brought it up on a show yet. But I think, you know, as we have a, an Olympic commission that's in charge of all the Olympic sports that are set up throughout the world. We should have a Hall of Fame committee that's a unification between football, basketball, baseball and hockey and set a common set of Hall of Fame criteria to honor the best players in each sport. Basketball's watered down. Football, in some cases, is watered down. And baseball, it's a big popularity contest. Those that are in the Hall of Fame are the ones that kiss the ass of the sports writers for how many years? And the sports writers don't care because they laugh. It makes them feel more powerful. Yet the Baseball Hall of Fame, as nice as the museum might be, as great of a job as Tim Meade is doing and as great of a job as Jeff Idelson did before him, Baseball Hall of fame's a joke because it doesn't honor the best players to ever play. Now, as we dealt with, of course, the coronavirus and the shutting down of sports for several months over the course of this year, The thought of bringing back sports was very enlightening to fans, was very enlightening to people. I mean, I think everybody could relate that's a sports fan to that time frame where there was no sports going on. You had the Michael Jordan documentary that dropped uh, a little bit earlier, but was done at the right time because it was something worth talking about. And things you learn about Michael Jordan and his playing career that maybe you didn't know. We know he was the greatest of all time. We know about that 1998 Chicago Bulls season that was going to be the last dance as the documentary was named. But also created a more nasty image of the bad boys in the Detroit Pistons. And I look back at that team and I, I don't think the Pistons did anything that was way worse than what other teams were doing. Basketball was played in the 1970s and 1980s with a lot more ferociousness, a lot more violence. There was a lot more contact. There was a lot more altercations. And that was the way that the game was played. And the Detroit Pistons, who were known for playing the game that way and maybe taking a little bit too much liberties with it, didn't do anything different than other teams were doing at that time. Now, Michael Jordan greatest player of all time. And it's hard to dispute that. May have had and probably had a say in Isaiah Thomas being part of the dream team. Was Isaiah Thomas as good as some of the players that ended up getting in there? Now, it's easy to knock Christian Leitner, but understand that the way the dream team was set up was going to be to bring in one player that was coming out of college that hadn't played in the NBA yet. And if you go back to that time, it's hard to unequivocally identify a player that was stronger or more dominant in college than Christian Lager. But if you look at the rest of the team, the Chris Mullins, um, the, I don't know, you know, David Robinson, you know, John Stockton. and, And listen, they're all Hall of Famers. But you can make a case that, Isaiah Thomas may have belonged on that team over a couple of those other players. And it was the image of the bad boys who were playing a style that was played by a lot of other teams, especially in the seventies, especially in the early eighties. You know, did Michael Jordan single-handedly say, Hey, I don't want to play with Isaiah Thomas. Nelson, said Isaiah Thomas doesn't come in with the cleanest of records either and you know the things that he dealt with you know after his playing career you know i mean the image that he has as a player this was still one of the best point guards in the history of the national basketball association so as it applies to baseball coming back after the couple months hiatus how much was it worth it for baseball and its fans to see the game come back with the rules compromised as they were. Seven inning doubleheaders may have made sense, especially with the breaking out of the coronavirus and a couple different teams that were infected. You know, the Marlins probably don't get 60 games in if it isn't for the seven inning doubleheaders. Same thing with some of the other teams that had uh, to, to deal with outbreaks of this virus and players that ended up getting it. And You know, you look at some of the things that were changed, and we do have to dispute whether there were narratives thrown out there by the commissioner, Rob Manfred, who's trying to make a name for himself, or were they actually beneficial for the time in a truncated 60-game season due to the coronavirus, the runaround second? Commissioner Manfred kind of wants his name behind that. That's something that he believes in. That's something that he loves. He used the fact that there was a truncated 60-game season to influence having, excuse me, a runner at second base to start extra innings. Did it speed up the game? I think it kept there from being, you know, 15-inning games or 17-inning games or 20-inning games. But was it necessary? You know, the pitcher having to face three batters in a game that's changed, a game that has gone away from the starting pitcher and has gone away from the relief pitcher coming in and pitching multiple innings. These are things that are happening. We're seeing them happen right now. Blake Snell in the most important game in a year being pulled after going through the batting order twice. And now you're going to try to force relief pitchers to have to face three batters you know there's some rules that were set up in baseball to be different there's some rules that were set up to help in regards to the coronavirus and players getting back in the game getting back in a season getting completed and there were others that were set to back the narrative of its commissioner that's trying to punch his ticket in baseball's hall of fame and if you don't know by now there's only been two commissioners out of the 10 in Major League Baseball that have not gotten into baseball's Hall of Fame. So pretty much you your criteria for getting into Hall of Fame is to just be a commissioner. Unless you're William Eckert, who didn't last very long, and A. Bartlett Giamatti, who sadly died while only in office for a couple months, you're getting into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The universal DH, you spend all day talking about that. Is it good for baseball? The reason I'm starting to believe in the universal DH is the fact that pitchers don't try to hit. Teams don't want their pitchers to hit. Pitchers stop hitting as early as high school. Are they even trying at the plate? They're embarrassing themselves. I quote Eli Gerba, who was a former major league pitcher, was a guest on this show several years past. And uh, unfortunately, we lost Eli last year sometime. So uh, may he rest in peace, but Eli Gerba, former pitcher for the Yankees and the Angels, he told me that pitchers needed to carry some weight as a hitter. That was their responsibility. They were expected to be out there taking batting practice every day. They were expected to be able to do something to help their team while they were hitting. That was part of their job as a pitcher. Somewhere over time, we've gotten away from that. 1973 comes Ron Bloomberg is the first designated hitter for the New York Yankees, and the American League has had a designated hitter ever since. All other forms of professional baseball have the designated hitter, except for the National League. So it's inevitable. The most die-hardest of baseball fans, and I love that baseball fan that says, "You know, you have the pitcher hitting; it takes away strategy, all this other stuff." But the reality is this if the pitchers aren't going to prepare properly to be hitters, if they're not going to make any effort to contribute on the offensive side of the ball, if teams aren't going to develop their pitchers to be able to hit, isn't it a lost cause? Isn't it something that we could identify that has changed in a game? As we're watching starting pitchers not go deep into games, We've long seen the starting pitchers, or any pitchers for that matter, even try to hit. Teams don't want to use starting pitchers anymore. They use openers. They have bullpen games. Do you want relief pitchers coming up there and hitting? Because how many relief pitchers could actually go out there and hit a baseball now? You got relief pitchers that come up to bat and they have to go through uh, you know the Elias Sports Bureau to see the last time they ever hit in any sort of game whatsoever maybe in a little league yet we go out there and we make this like it's a matter of strategy trust me i was the biggest national league baseball supporter that you could imagine i'd love to see pitchers hit but i've understood that the game has changed and it's not going to be the way it's going to be for much longer and you might as well have a DH in a National League. Allow National League teams to build their rosters the same way as an American League team. And just accept it. And for those that are pissed off, the diehard National League baseball fans, they should blame the changes in the game of baseball. They should blame the pitchers not trying to hit. They should blame teams that haven't tried To have their pitchers hit, that have told their pitchers not to hit, that don't have their pitchers take batting practice, that have stopped pitchers from hitting since the days of Little League and high school ball. That's who you blame. You don't blame the designated hitter. You don't blame the change in a game as much as what has happened to get to the change. So another thing we hit up a lot of times during the year, we talked about racism as, as his hit sports, obviously has been in the minds of the world for so many years. And it's something that I'm passionate about because I don't understand in a world that was created by God, how people can decide that some of his creations are superior to others. And we've touched on Jackie Robinson his impact, April 15, 1947, breaking baseball's color barrier. You know, Bobby Mitchell, one of the Hall of Famers we lost this year, was the first member of the then Washington Redskins and now the Washington football team. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking about coaches in football, managers in baseball. Why are there teams that haven't haven't accepted A darker skinned person as a coach or in a leadership role. So I wonder, and I try to look back because I think there's a lot of people that are listening or watching that could understand this. We're in a society now where we have done a, a much better job in regards to equality, in regards to acceptance. I think if somebody is an outspoken racist. They are pretty much thrown to the curb. They're treated harshly. They're the ones that nobody ends up sticking up for. Think of Donald Sterling, the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers. Yeah, he ends up being caught on video saying some, you know, nasty comments, and he was forced to sell his team. Al Campanis in 1987 makes the silly assumption. And maybe he didn't know what he was saying. You know, we've gotten his son, Jim, and his grandson, Jim Jr., that have both come on this show and spoken about how, you know, Al may have not necessarily understood how the significance of what he was saying, but he lost his job. We're in a society where those that are against equality are becoming the minority and i am baffled on how far we've had to come in society seeing what happened in the 1940s and earlier and in the 1950s and 1960s and to understand how in regards to sports how could you ever say that racism was okay how could you say it's okay To not have black players on your team if you're a fan once again what do you want to do as a fan you want to see your team win the whole thing if you're a fan you want to you want your team to be holding up the trophy at the end of the year you want them to win a championship fans don't care what their team looks like they want their team to win so was there a real argument that could have been made that white players were superior to black players in sports at a certain time? Because history doesn't prove that. Major League Baseball finally acknowledges the Negro Leagues as a major league. You know, hopefully someday somebody could dig into the deepest part of the statistics and we could have stats for the Negro Leagues players that are more apples to apples with the stats of the other professional baseball players and the other major leagues. But it it blows my mind how we could ever talk about racism being okay for any time. Jim Crow being okay in any sort of time. And once again, we had these people, and most people would say that they accept God, and maybe not necessarily Jesus, but they accept the fact that there is a God that created each and every one of them. And they wouldn't say that he created everybody equal. He really, people really think or really thought that God created people to be different based off of their looks. I mean, how, how, I can't even understand or begin to understand how people were okay accepting that as a fact or assuming it was a fact. The core four, when it comes to the Yankees, people refer to them as Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, Andy Pettit, Jorge Posada. Four great players, four extremely integral parts of the New York Yankees dynasty of the late 90s and early 2000s. Some of the greatest players to ever put on a New York Yankees uniform. But core four is an insult to bernie williams without bernie williams the yankees don't win those championships you can make a case that they could have won with a different pitcher other than andy pettit they could have won with a different catcher other than jorge prasada you want to say you need Jeter and mariano i got no issue with it but outside of Derek cheater and outside of mariano rivera The most integral part of those New York Yankee teams was Bernie Williams. And it's an insult to Bernie Williams to talk about the core four and to not include Bernie Williams. We talked this year about in baseball, the coronavirus and the handling of it by Major League Baseball. And you could question it. You could say, hey, Major League Baseball may have done a bad job. Uh, May have missed some things, but I think for the most part, they did okay. Biggest problem I have is the handling by the Major League Baseball players, players that would defy the curfew, players that would not do the simple things that they're asked to do. Excuse me. And you look at a couple separate instances. Maybe the Cardinals. Some players going out and spreading the virus. Players not caring like Joe Kelly. Hey, I'm going to go throw at somebody. Forgetting the fact that we need to honor space. Trying to keep six feet of space amongst players. But you're inciting brawls when you're going to go out there and throw punches. Or want to throw punches. Justin Turner being announced that he's got the coronavirus going out on a, on a field without a mask celebrating a world series championship with the Dodgers. The players came out small here and you're seeing it happen a little bit in, in football, a little bit in basketball, James Harden, Dwayne Haskins. So far, it seems like the players have dropped the ball the most in regards to this. And I think the professional leagues, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, hockey, They've done everything they could to set the proper protocols, to set the proper rules. And it is the players that have dropped the ball and missed it. So Lou Brock, one of the, I'm going to say eight Hall of Famers in baseball, because I'm going to include Dick Allen. This was a sad year for baseball, sad year for basketball and football, too, in regards to Hall of Famers. In baseball, we lost Tom Seaver, we lost Lou Brock, we lost Whitey Ford, we lost Bob Gibson, we lost Joe Morgan, we lost Al Kaline, and most recently, we lost Phil Necro. Dick Allen should have been in the Hall of Fame before he passed away. And it's sad, because this was the year that the Veterans Committee was likely to vote on Dick Allen. That was postponed until next year, because... the determination that in this research process, we need a lot of face-to-face. We need a lot of face-to-face meetings, and it won't be announced until next year, which unfortunately Dick Allen didn't get to hear that he's a baseball Hall of Famer while he was here on this planet. But Lou Brock, one of the players we lost this year, was known for his trade in 1964 from the Chicago Cubs to the St. Louis Cardinals. And one of the sad things about that trade that has not been spoken about so much is the fact that it was likely based off of race. Lou Brock was traded to the St. Louis Cardinals in what turns out to be a lopsided trade, a trade that at the time didn't look so bad. Ernie Bruglio was a very good pitcher. He was supposed to help the Cubs, but the Cubs at that time had Ernie Banks and Billy Williams and a couple other black players on their team. And it's a shame because we spent a lot of time this year talking about race and the unfairness and the unfair treatment of African American players. 1964, every team had at least one African American player. And we're talking about 1964, still teams self imposing quotas of having too many black players on a team. And that's what was determined. By owner Philip Wrigley and the Chicago Cubs and led to the trade of Brock to St. Louis. Now, was that the sole reason that he was traded? No. Bruglio was part of it. He, he seems to be very underrated as far as the impact that he could have had at the time of the trade. Lou Brock was not necessarily carried it up at that time. Two things that were very important and led to the trade But unfortunately, race had something to do with it, too. The Cubs need to not have as many black players on their team. We spoke about Tom Seaver. And, of course, another Hall of Famer we lost this year. The greatest player in history of the New York Mets franchise will forever be. And a situation that involved his signing or his being drafted by the Atlanta Braves. And baseball screwed up here. You can tell me all you want about how the rules were set and the Braves violated the rules. What did the Braves do wrong by offering their own player a contract? They drafted him, didn't they? Did the Braves draft Tom Seaver? Yes. And they were penalized because they offered him a contract while he was still on the roster of his team. And, and that's a that's a terrible job by Major League Baseball to allow something like that to cost a team a draft pick. Now, if you're a Mets fan, you can't complain about that. You say, hey, it's one of the greatest mishaps in the history of sports because it benefited the Mets by giving them their greatest player. But as much of a Mets fan as I am, I still don't understand the circumstances which led to Tom Seaver basically being void And to no longer be property of the Atlanta Braves. And to allow any other team to go out there and offer him the contract that the Braves offered him. Because one thing seems to go with the other. The Braves drafted Tom Seaver. Somewhere along the lines, there's going to be a contract offer. And the Braves get penalized for that. We spent a lot of time over the last couple months talking about rooting for your team's To lose. And if that describes you as a sports fan, you're probably not as good of a sports fan as you think you are. Jets fans claiming that, hey, if the Jets just lose all the rest of their games, they'll get Trevor Lawrence. I get that you want the potential game changing player. I remember there were Cleveland Cavaliers fans, most of the city of Cleveland. That were rooting for the Cavs to lose so they could get the number one draft pick and select LeBron James. Unfortunately, tanking in the NBA is a little more common than it is in a National Football League. You can't tank in a National Football League. Fans can tank, organizations can try to tank, but when it comes to the players on the field, the players, if they're caught not trying, they're an embarrassment to themselves in a the league. But if they get caught not trying and let their guard down for one second, they can end up getting hurt. They can end up getting paralyzed. They can end up getting hit in the head and end up with CTE. Their lives may never be the same. And they point back to the day that they didn't try and they got socked for not trying to play football. NFL teams don't tank. NFL players can't tank. Sports fans. fans. I'm sorry. You gotta sign you should be signing away some of your fanhood to actually root for your team to lose on a given day. Celebrating mediocrity. I said this as this applied to the New York Mets. And they've spent many years celebrating mediocrity. You see it right now. With uh, you know the writers and uh, you know the the guys the guys and girls holding up the pom poms, talking about how great of a season Michael Conforto and Dominic Smith and Brandon Nimmo had. In other words, saying that it's all right for a team to be eight games under 500. It's okay for a team to miss the playoffs when baseball opened up its playoffs to more than half the league. Fans like to celebrate mediocrity Some of them do Some of them enjoy it Some of them go back and say Hey it's nice to have a rookie of the year A Cy Young award winner It's nice to make the playoffs You know wild card winner Right You see a lot of celebration Of mediocrity And I think it is kind of a little contradiction Of what I just said In regards to There's fans that root for their team to lose. (laughs) And then there's fans on the other side that think things that aren't going so well are going a lot better than they are. There's Mets fans out there that wish and hope that Steve Cohen as the owner with Sandy Alderson as his general manager and Jared Porter and Zach Scott. There's fans that hope that they don't add a single player Hopefully the Mets don't add a player, so Luis Guillorme can get some playing time. Celebrate mediocrity. So the last thing that I'm going to talk about, I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. This is the Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. By two A's, one passion food truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Went through probably a couple dozen of the top points over the 2020 PBS season. So one thing that we think of as analysts, as fans, as people that are passionate about sports and our favorite sports team, we tend to judge the players that we, we follow. We tend to judge the coaches that we follow. Are they a good coach? Are they a good player? It all seems to come down to one thing. It comes down to winning and losing. If the Jets were 10 and 5 right now, getting ready to go to the playoffs, or playing in the last week with a chance of getting to the playoffs, I think Jets fans would think Adam Gates was a better head coach. And as you talk about coaches, Bill Fitch won an NBA championship. He's in the Hall of Fame, but he was also the coach of some of the worst new jersey nets basketball teams ever connie mack as the manager of the philadelphia athletics won five world series championships he was also the manager of some of the worst teams in baseball history so the point i'm getting at is we judge a coach we judge players are they only good when their teams are good and did they forget what they were doing when their teams are bad casey stengel Was he a lousy manager for the Brooklyn Dodgers for the Boston Braves and Boston bees for the New York Mets. But in a 12 year period where he was the manager of the New York Yankees, he was the best of all time. You're only as good as the talent that you have assembled in front of you. Players are judged by the same reasons that coaches are judged wins and losses. The late nineties, early two thousands in regards to baseball, Obviously, we call it the steroids era, but you look at some of the seasons that were put up by position players year in and year out. And you could look at lineups one through eight or American League lineups one through nine and see some of the strongest lineups that were ever set. But teams that weren't getting to the playoffs every year. Texas Rangers weren't getting to the playoffs the three years they had Alex Rodriguez. And those were probably the three best years of Alex Rodriguez's career. So you could have great individual numbers You could even have great team stats But in the end Was Alex Rodriguez good from 2001 to 2003 Since his team ended up finishing with a losing record His manager at some point would end up losing his job We judge players and we judge coaches By the amount of wins that they have. And if all of a sudden they win, something internally must have happened to change them and make them a better coach. So I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. This will be the last show of the year 2020. So we'll be back with you. We're going to aim for Saturday, which I think would be a good day. The second day of January 2021. So I hope everybody enjoys the rest of their day, their New Year's Eve. And hopefully your year has been the best that it possibly could be. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.